Good morning. Welcome to our time of teaching here at Community Bible Chapel, especially if you came this morning as a visitor. We're glad that you're here. Last time I read, I brought my Bible up to read, but there wasn't any room. Tom's got his Bible. There's something electronic right here. There's a laptop over here. I cannot read from an iPhone. That's not the Bible. So I have the printed word to read. We're reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to king, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we live in this world in such a way that brings glory to you by how we honor men and honor you. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to Daylight Savings Time. I want you to picture two little boys, Dylan and his best friend Jamie, playing in a large backyard sandbox that Dylan's dad has just constructed and filled with a whole bunch of sand. With plenty of water, plastic cups, shovels, and action figures at the ready, the two boys commence to build vast castle fortresses and to execute epic battles, competing to see which of their two great kingdoms will end up dominating the other. At one point when the verbal sparring over who actually won the last round of battle reaches fever pitch, Dylan's dad comes out from the garage where he's been working diligently on his wife's car. He tells the boys to settle down and to speak kindly to each other, and then he returns to the garage to keep working on the car. But as soon as he disappears back into the garage, (laughs) the argument resumes and escalates. Finally, a red-faced Jamie kicks down the mighty fortress wall that Dylan has spent the last 15 minutes erecting. And he begins gloating loudly about making Dylan's kingdom, a slave nation. Overhearing all this and convinced that the boys have been watching too many Tolkien movies, Dylan's dad returns to the backyard and he stands before the boys and and he says, boys, those were some very impressive kingdoms, but guess what? All that sand is mine. And when I say settle down, I mean settle down. Now, both of you guys out of the sandbox. There'll be no no more of this for today. In 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 13, Peter launches into a series of unexpected and uncompromising instructions to us as the children of God regarding how we are to respond to people who are in positions of authority over us. And if there's one thing that will become very clear right up front as we work through these strong exhortations in chapters 2 and 3 over the coming weeks, it is that all of the power and authority that men and angels wield over other men and angels ultimately belongs entirely to God. All of the authority belongs to God. It's His sandbox... (laughs) And he controls all of the sand. Peter's wording at the beginning of verse 13 should get our attention. He says literally, Submit yourselves to every human creation for the Lord's sake. Now the word translated institution in verse 13 shows up 19 times in the New Testament. In every other instance except this one, 
In all the other 18 occurrences, that word is consistently translated as creation, creature, or created thing. In this context, Peter is using the phrase every human creation to refer to authorities and formal offices that appear to the world to be the constructs of men. From the world's perspective, all the people who hold official positions of power and authority over men, whether they be kings or presidents or prime ministers or governors or congressmen or mayors or judges or police officers, all of them hold that authority by man's doing from the perspective of the world. Those who live under the authority of such people may see that whole arrangement as necessary for the sake of preserving social order. But if human authority is in fact the construct of humans, then the necessity of submitting to that authority is at best a very relative matter. And submission from the heart doesn't even enter the picture. Submission becomes essentially a matter of avoiding punishment and pursuing reward from the hands of those who have power over me. When someone in a position of power handles his authority in a manner that I consider legitimate and just, I'm okay with the fact that he has authority. And I might even cut him some slack in areas where I disagree with him some. But when someone in a position of power grossly abuses his authority and I have to suffer for it, that's when I get off the boat. That's how the world views human authority. But for the people of God, there is a radical paradigm shift when it comes to the whole issue of submission to human authorities. Peter acknowledges the popular perception that human authority is a human creation, he acknowledges that just long enough to blow it away with the truth of God. He says, submit yourselves to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Submit for whose sake? Not for the sake of the king or governor. Not for the sake of preserving social order. Not even for the sake of avoiding the punishment or securing the rewards and praise that such men are empowered to dispense. But for the Lord's sake. Why? Because the person bearing the authority over you is sent by God. Sent to do what? To punish those who do evil and to praise, to reward those who do right. Now, Peter isn't saying that that's what human authorities always do. (laughs) This was Nero's rule when he wrote this. He's saying that that's why God gave men their authority. That's God's assignment to those who hold positions of power to act on his behalf as his agents, to punish evildoers and to praise those who do right. Paul says exactly the same thing in Romans 13. Okay, so human authorities are sent by God, but which ones is Peter talking about? Surely there are some men who steal or usurp authority that does not rightfully belong to them. And there are some men and women who come into positions of power legitimately, but then end up being ruined by that power and they end up grossly abusing it. God certainly doesn't intend for us as children of a just and righteous God to submit to unjust and unrighteous rulers, does He? Listen to these words from Paul in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. And as you listen... (laughs) Note that the word created that shows up twice in these two verses is the verb form of the exact same word that Peter used when he spoke of every human creation. 
Colossians 1.16. This was read this morning, I think. Yeah, it was. Jimmy read it. For by Him, Jesus Christ, by, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And we say, okay, I'm good with that. Jesus made everything that I see. But look at, look at what He then specifies. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things And in Him all things hold together. Okay, so who created thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities? Jesus did. How many of them were created by and for Jesus Christ? Every one of them. And according to verse 17, it says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You know what that means? That means that if Jesus determined that a king or anyone in authority needed to lose that authority, He would lose it in a New York minute. Okay. So, we're talking about all authorities. But against which authorities are we actually doing battle? I want to look at one other element to this biblical declaration, and it's outside of this passage. I'm just going to read four verses from Ephesians 6. They're pretty well known. As I do, pay close attention to how Paul uses the terms rulers and powers. And the word powers is the word authorities. It's the exact same word that Peter uses here. He's talking... Paul is talking about rulers and authorities that exist in two realms. In the heavenly realm and in the earthly realm. Listen to what he says. Finally, this is Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then he says, for our struggle... Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers, against the the powers, the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. There are rulers and authorities on earth and there are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Throughout both testaments of the Bible, it has been very clear that those two were strongly connected. Heavenly or spiritual rulers wield great influence in this world over the rulers and authorities on earth. Just read passages like Daniel 10. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Daniel 10, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. That's just a few examples. But it is not against earthly rulers that we are engaged in pitch battle as the people of God. They're not our problem. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Is that what we're getting hot and bothered about? Ever since God gave Adam and Eve the assignment of dominion and authority over His creation as His His image bearers and agents, Satan has been doing all that he can to to utterly convince human beings that that rule, that authority, is our domain. And that we get to exercise it on our terms. And he's been succeeding at that deception ever since his first attempt in Genesis 3. Satan has been working systematically throughout history in a relentless effort to get men to co-opt the entire realm of God-given authority to see it as ours instead of God's. 
And that's where the real battle lies. Our fight is not against men who abuse the authority of public office the same way we as husbands sometimes abuse the authority that God gives us over our wives. Or that we as supervisors in the work world sometimes abuse the authority that God gives us in that realm. Our fight is against the spiritual forces of wickedness who are bent on convincing us that our authority is our domain instead of God's. In Romans 13, a passage that's amazingly similar to the one we're looking at here in 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Paul explains the origin of all authority. All authority, everywhere, and he does so as unambiguously as words permit. He says, Romans 13, 1, let every person, every person, be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Is he mincing words there? Is he being unclear? Is there any part of the statement, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God, that is unclear? Does that declaration apply only to people in positions of power who willingly submit to God? Or does it also apply to those who strenuously resist submission to God? I think the answer is clear, isn't it? In the final analysis, there is only one being to whom words like sovereignty, authority, dominion and power actually apply. Only one. And isn't it marvelous to realize that even the rulers and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places against which we do battle spiritually every single day, all have their very existence in the one upon whom we utterly rely. In Acts 17, Paul says, In Him we live and move and are. (laughs) That applies to every angel and to every man and to every created thing. There is only one source of authority in all of God's creation. All the sand belongs to the creator of the sandbox. Okay, so if all authority comes from God and has to be delegated by God to men, why does God delegate His authority to ungodly men? Why would He do that? If God's the one calling all the shots, why would He ever give any meaningful power and authority to people whom He knows will abuse that authority? How about to test His people? To smoke out whom we actually trust as the source of our well-being. That's the reason Peter gave in chapter 1 of this epistle for the various trials that we experience as children of God during our time on this earth. Doesn't the category of unjust treatment fit into the category of various trials? How about... This, what if God temporarily grants authority to men whom He knows will not rightly submit to Him in order to dramatically highlight the humble obedience of those who delight in submitting to Him? Those few. What if the darkness exists precisely to draw the greatest possible attention to the light that overwhelms and overcomes that darkness? What if the suffering that we as God's people experience at the hands of men who are of the darkness is being used by God to draw all the more attention to the source of the light that is within us? 
Wouldn't that fit with everything that Peter's been talking about up to this point in this letter? Wouldn't that fit with our proclamation? To proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, none of this is accidental. God has not taken his hands off the wheel. He has not given up the slightest measure of his sovereignty over his creation. It is. It was no more accidental that Hitler rose to power than it was that Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar rose to power. And God explicitly declared that both of those two men exercised their authority over men and over his people by his doing. Both of them abused their authority and both of them answered to God for that abuse. But even in the midst of their most grievous abuse of their God-given authority, God was using them to accomplish His will toward His people. Even in their sinful, prideful rebellion against God, even as Sennacherib declared, your God can't protect you from me. Those men were God's agents, His instruments to accomplish His perfect agenda. This is His sandbox and He owns all the sand. The entire issue of authority is fundamentally about the issue of sovereignty. And there is only one who is sovereign. Regardless of who gets elected this November, it will be no more a lapse of God's sovereignty than it was that Herod or Pontius Pilate or the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin occupied their respective positions of authority when Jesus was arrested, falsely accused of blasphemy and treason, mocked, spat upon, tortured, and crucified by them for us. According to the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter on the day of Pentecost, it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Think about that for a minute, beloved. God predetermined the single most unjust act ever committed by godless men in the history of his creation in order to accomplish perfect victory over our sin. In order to put an end to the curse that we brought from his hand upon his creation as the necessary consequence of our violation of his character. Do you think that he can't overcome and overwhelm the injustices that we experience today? The cross is our template. (laughs) It's our answer from God. When God commands us to submit to every human authority, you know what he's telling us to do? He's telling us to take up the cross of Christ, to follow in his footsteps, trusting entirely in the God who always judges justly, even when it looks to us like he doesn't. That's verses 21 to 25 of this same chapter. After calling believers to submit to every human authority, Peter says here in verses 15 and 16, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as Free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for sin, but use it as bond slaves of God. We who belong to Christ are called to act in keeping with our new identity. And Peter has been, he's been laying out for us that marvelous new identity for quite some time in the, in the preceding passages. But here he points out yet another aspect of that wonderful identity in two parts. We are to do right as free men, but we are to use our freedom as slaves of God. How can we be both slaves and free men at the same time? 
Well, what kind of slavery and what kind of freedom is Peter talking about here? What do men do when they become convinced that someone who possesses great power to do them terrible harm also happens to be a very dubious character? That that powerful person's motives and intentions cannot be trusted. Well, they become afraid of that person. And they begin to do whatever they can to avoid, to structure out the possibility of suffering harm from the hand of that person. And in many cases, that takes the form of absolute surrender. And that makes them slaves to that powerful, untrustworthy ruler. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 22 and 23, Paul is talking directly to slaves. And he says, He who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. And then he says, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men but he's talking to slaves of men. He's talking to slaves who have masters on earth. But by God's reckoning, because they are in Christ, they are no longer slaves of men. See, when God saved you through faith in Jesus Christ, if that has happened in your life, He freed you not only from the power of sin but also from the power of men. It is no longer possible for you to be a slave of men, even if your role on this earth is that of a slave. When a man has no control over your well-being, that man has no meaningful power over you. When God grants a man authority over you, Your motivation to submit to that authority as a child of God is not based on the pursuit of whatever blessing that man can bestow on you or on the avoidance of whatever curse or harm he can inflict on you. Whatever he does or doesn't do has nothing at all to do with your well-being. Nothing. So his approval or disapproval is not your concern. Your concern is God's approval. Part of the marvelous, liberating light into which God has graciously brought you in Christ is that you now clearly understand who controls all blessing and all curse. And it's not any human being. No man. No man has the power either to bless you or to curse you. Man at his best and at his worst is nothing but an agent, an instrument of God, whether willing or unwilling. Just ask Balaam. Men are nothing but instruments of the one who controls all blessing and all curse. So why submit to human rulers if they have zero control over your well-being? If they can't actually bless you or curse you, why submit to them? Just one reason. Peter gives it right here. Just one reason. For God's sake. For the sake of the reputation of Jesus Christ and the advancement of His kingdom on earth, that's why you and I submit to unjust and ungodly and unreasonable authorities. That's why we submit. When we as God's people submit joyfully, joyfully to the human beings whom God has placed in authority over us, when we do so without any fear, because all of our trust is in the God who always judges justly, God uses that joyful willing submission in eternally powerful ways 
Here, Peter says that God uses that submission to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know who was the master at that? It's an easy answer. It's the Iwana answer. Jesus. As always, Jesus is our perfect example of what that which God requires of us who are in Christ. He was repeatedly accused of rebellion against the Jewish authorities and against the Roman authorities. And yet every time, every single time the Jewish leaders tried to trip Jesus up and catch Him in some kind of infraction against Roman law so they could get Him arrested, He proved to be a more faithful subject of Rome than they were. Over and over, Jesus silenced the ignorance of foolish men. And that's what He intends to do through us right now. A presidential election cycle in the United States provides a marvelous opportunity for us as the children of God, as citizens of the kingdom of our Lord, to show Him off. We get to show the world that our living hope is not in men. Our trust is not in princes, in mortal men in whom there is no salvation. Our help and our hope is the God of Jacob. Psalm 146. (laughs) And he never disappoints. Earlier this week, my brother Ron Manis sent out an email article that many of you saw from the Gospel Coalition website. An article was written by Trevin Wax, who has quickly become one of my favorite contributors to to that website. (laughs) The article is entitled, The Trolls Are Winning. And you may not know with that... that present version of the word trolls means, but if you go read the article, you'll figure it out. (laughs) I want to give you just the last few lines from the article. Whenever you feel the need to relentlessly attack the candidates you disagree with, you should see that tendency as fleshly, not godly. The apostles Peter and Paul were clear. Christians are to show honor to everyone including in their time Nero, a bloodthirsty sexual deviant on Caesar's throne. And then Trevin says, we should be known for honor in a world of insults. We should be known for honor in a world of insults. And then he says, alongside programs that filter internet content coming into our phones or computers, we ought to consider an honor filter that would help us control what goes out. The world needs, he says, the world needs the aroma of heaven, not the toxic fumes of our online battles. He says, if it's true that the trolls are winning the web, let's make sure there are as few Christians as possible among them. Now that doesn't mean, beloved, that we are never to take a stand against abuses of power or injustices. John the Baptist rebuked Herod for taking his brother's wife as his own wife, and he lost his head for that rebuke. In Acts 16, after God miraculously released Paul and Silas from a jail in Philippi, the chief magistrates who had unjustly ordered them to be beaten and imprisoned became fearful of Paul and Silas because God had just let them out. Looks to me, from what I can tell in the passage, Paul and Silas went back to the jail. The chief magistrates were very upset and they, were, they sent some of their underlings to go and try to get Paul and Silas to leave. Quietly. But Paul refused to budge until those officials came to him face to face so they would be forced to own up to their own unjust actions. And when David was fleeing for his life from King Saul, there were two occasions when David pleaded his innocence of any wrongdoing against Saul and earnestly asked Saul to stop that unjust pursuit of David's life. So it's not wrong for God's people to confront earthly rulers who abuse their power, even if those rulers care nothing about God. But there is one very important thing that those examples of protest against abuse and authority 
have in common. The protests were all directed to the offender, not to everyone else about the offender. They were not public rants to demonize abusive officials in the eyes of all who were under their authority. I realize it's widely held that John the Baptist spoke out publicly against the immorality of the Tetrarch, but that's not what the text says. The common argument in view, in favor of the view that John's reproof of Herod was a public reproof is that there would have been no way for a little prophet like John to ever even gain an audience with a man at Herod's level. But that's not what the text says. Luke 3 simply says that Herod was reproved by John on account of Herodias, his brother's wife. And both Matthew and Mark present that reproof in the form of specific words spoken directly by John to Herod, not to the masses about Herod. The words are, it is not lawful for you, Herod, to have your brother's wife. Not, it, it, the text doesn't say that John was saying it's not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. John may have been too insignificant a person to easily obtain an audience with Herod, but there was such a thing as a letter even then. And such a letter or letters would easily have gotten John arrested by Herod. I don't know how all this happened, but I know that the wording indicates that John said these words to Herod. And that approach, by the way, matches up with the prophetic example. It matches up with the examples of Nathan's rebuke against King David and Samuel's multiple rebukes against King Saul. They were always man to man. If you feel the need to vent against a public official... Perhaps you should consider venting to that public official by whatever means is available to you. I've seen posts from brothers in Christ that I think violate this this instruction when they toss in for a little extra validation a statement like, just saying, which is this decade's version of, I'm just keeping it real. Beloved, how about if we keep it biblical, then we'll know that it's real. I'm not making this stuff up. If I were, I can assure you it would look very different than it looks here. Very different. I doubt that there's anybody in this room who has been more strident than I was in previous years when it came to public arguments about the evils of public leaders. I've said some very harsh things in public forums about the leaders that God has placed in authority over me. Very harsh. But guys, don't be like I was. Be like Christ. Who, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you think I'm still off base here, please consider this. In the very next passage in 1 Peter 2, Peter instructs believing slaves to submit even to unreasonable masters who inflict unjust suffering on them. And he tells them to do so with all respect and for the sake of conscience toward God. Twice, Paul says to slaves in that same circumstance, submit not as men-pleasers, not with eye service, but from the heart as unto the Lord, not as unto men. For it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. And then at the beginning of the next chapter, Peter instructs wives who who have husbands that are disobedient to the Word to be submissive to those husbands so that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as their husbands observe their chaste and respectful behavior. And right in between those two revolutionary exhortations to slaves and to wives, 
Peter sets before us Christ's example of the godly submission to which he is calling us in every relationship with authority. And that example is the cross. Considering that context for this passage, is there anyone here who actually believes that Peter's instructions to us regarding submission to governing authorities somehow authorizes us to do the Facebook equivalent of dragging our wicked rulers through the streets in flaming effigy. There's no way Peter's allowing for that. I've been guilty of it, but there's no way that Peter is allowing for that. To justify that kind of conclusion, you have to rip the very heart out of everything that Peter says here about submission. Godly submission. Not to mention everything that Paul says about godly submission. Guys, I'm just trying to be biblical. If I'm pointing fingers, they point this way. We need to be biblical. We need to let God tell us what's true. We need to let God tell us what godly submission looks like. We need to recognize it's His sand, not ours. Both testaments of Scripture call us as God's people to a humble, quiet, prayerful submission to every authority that God has ordained over us during our sojourn on this earth. Whether we are citizens or wives or slaves or sheep. That is how we will silence the ignorance of foolish men. That is how God will use our excellent behavior to bring those who slander us as evildoers today to glorify God in the day of visitation. Wouldn't you like for that to happen through you? We who are slaves to God submit to human authorities because their authority comes from God. And since the goal of that submission to men is to honor God and to carry out His agenda on earth, we can rest assured, we can rest assured that if and when a human authority requires us to violate God's character and God's commands, God intends for us to say no. In Acts chapter 4, when the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem commanded Peter and John to speak no more in the name of this man, Jesus, they replied, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking that which we have seen and heard. When the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar made a golden idol and decreed that everyone in the kingdom had to fall down and worship before that image, the three faithful Hebrew youth, uh, young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, respectfully, respectfully, refused to do so. Nebuchadnezzar commanded that they be thrown into a fiery furnace to be turned to ash. (laughs) The Babylonian soldiers, soldiers who escorted them into that fire died from the intensity of the flame. But not even a hair on the heads of those three Hebrew youths was singed. And of course they had company in the fire. When King Darius foolishly agreed to issue a decree that no man in his kingdom could pray to any god or man except to him, God's faithful servant Daniel continued praying to the one true God only. So the king, with his hands tied by his own very foolish decree, reluctantly ordered that Daniel be cast into a lion's den to be torn limb from limb. The next morning when King Darius came to the opening of the lion's den to see what had happened to Daniel, the unscathed Daniel's first words to Darius were, O king, live forever. And that was the standard salutation of respect by a subject in that kingdom to the king. When David wrote his eulogy to the man who had spent a couple of decades chasing him all over the place trying to kill him, there was not one single negative word in that eulogy. Not one. 
You think David didn't have justification to vilify Saul? Not before God. Every single time David was given opportunity to vindicate himself, to kill Saul, he said to his own soldiers, I cannot stand against God's anointed. It wasn't because Saul was a good king. It was because David knew who Saul's authority came from. When men in positions of authority forbid us to do what God commands, when they command us to do what God forbids, we must always say no. But we must say no with humility and with respect, acknowledging that the authority even of godless rulers is given to them by God. Finally, Peter says, Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. While the command to honor applies in our relationships with all people, the command to fear applies to only one. We recognize that there is only one being in existence who is worthy of our fear. Only one. We are called by God to submit to many people to whom God has granted authority over us in many different contexts of life, in society, in the church, in our homes, in our marriages. We are called to show honor to all people as those created in the image of God. We are called to fervently love our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and to give preference to one another in honor. Honoring others more than we honor ourselves but we are to fear only one. If you have not come to trust in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior of men, the one whose perfect sacrifice has forever satisfied the wrath of God against you because of your sin, then I pray that God will make this very clear to you. You have nothing to fear from the hands of men. And you have everything to fear from the hand of God. Jesus is coming back. And when He does, it will be to eternally judge all of those who do not trust in Him alone. And to take to Himself all who do trust in Him that He might dwell with us eternally. Believe in Him today and be saved forever. If you belong to Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone, you also have nothing to fear from the hands of men. Not one thing. God is the only one worthy of your fear. But for His children, that fear doesn't send us running from Him in terror. It brings us to cling to Him in perfect peace. Because we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. That's 1 John 4.16. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. Beloved, we are a nation within a nation. We are strangers and exiles on this earth. And like Israel and Judah during the times of their exile, we have a marvelous opportunity set before us by our God. God called Israel and Judah to honor and glorify His name among the nations into which He sent them in exile. And instead, instead, they profaned His name by becoming like the people of those lands. By fearing the same things that those people feared and committing the same sins that those people committed. In Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'll end with this, God harshly indicted Israel and Judah for profaning His name among the nations when they were in exile. And then, He told them He was going to vindicate His holy name. If I had been a Judahite at that point and heard those words, I would have been waiting for the, the bomb. 
waiting for the hand of God to destroy me. But instead of destroying them as they deserved, God declared in the very next breath that he would gather them from all the nations. He would sprinkle clean water on them. He would cleanse them from their filthiness. He would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He would put a new heart and a new spirit within them. And with that new spirit dwelling within them, he would cause them to walk in all his statutes and to carefully observe all of his ordinances. He would be their people and they would be. He would be their God and they would be his people. Beloved, the fulfillment of those astounding new covenant promises in the Old Testament, (laughs) the fulfillment of those promises is the church of Jesus Christ. The redeemed household of God that is made up of both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free man. May we who are the bearers of God himself glorify him among the nations during whatever remains of our brief time in this exile. May God use us to proclaim and to demonstrate His authority as the only authority that exists. When He returns, it will be too late for men to benefit from that proclamation. On that day, everyone will know who owns all of the sand. Dear Father, use us until that day. Make us bright lights in the darkness. Show us what it means, Lord, to submit even to unjust authorities in a manner that shows you off. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.